Greetings. Welcome to the Asana Kitchen podcast. I'm David Garig, and today's subject is uh, on using props, modifying, and customizing your practice. Now, I have an upcoming online course with that very title uh, that uh, I encourage you to, to join me in. And uh, so I'm just going to discuss the, uh, the subject some with you. And um, it's funny, um, I would, in some ways, I would rather not have such strong feelings as I do about this subject. And um, so I'm just going to spend a little moment clearing the air, as it were. Um, I have like lots of uh, kind of uh, things to say that can uh, help you improve your practice. But it seems to me that there's no avoiding, uh, I don't know, some kind of confrontation about um, Ashtanga's attitude towards props and um, that I just find to be very uh, unfortunate, unnecessary, and inauspicious. And so to modify a pose uh, or to use a prop like a yoga mat, a block, a wall, uh, or anything at all, a chair, just to, to uh, give yourself some kind of advantage is um, it's just, a bi- just such a standard thing to do in terms of um, being engaged in the art of Hatha Yoga. And so uh, the fact that my lineage, my system that I'm I align myself with and that I respect that it's just an automatic taboo that the every Ashtanga student has to like overcome a certain obstacle or feel like they're going against the rules to do this very basic thing um, in practice. And I just, I wish, I truly wish that it was not even, there was no controversy, there was no discussion, it was and there was no line drawn at all about this idea that somehow, um, yeah, that Ashtanga doesn't, that's breaking the rules, or you're not, you're not doing Ashtanga if you do props. Or <clears throat> and um, so like there's a list of statements about props that I, about using props or modifying that I disagree with. And I'm just going to go down that list with you for a moment. And these are uh, kind of suppositions or uh, premises that people that do Ashtanga either come somehow quickly adopt. Um, and I would like to think that this is from is like in the past and that kind of in the modern uh, take of Ashtanga that there's more more acceptance and tolerance. And that might be true in some circles, but I would say that within the greater majority of Ashtanga, there's still a astigmatism. <laughs> it's so funny to, to think to me. It's just so funny. But but also behind the my laughing, I, I, there's some anger because it's such a waste, so so unnecessary and such a waste of a an, a valuable um, resource for practice. But 
So here's some of these uh, kind of misguided um, just statements that, about Ash, the props that Ashtanga students often hold. So the advanced student doesn't use props. That's just simply wrong. Okay, the ideal practice doesn't include props. No, sorry, that's not correct. Um, props, the less the better, preferably none. Nope, um, only old, older or injured students should or do use props. Nope, not true, props are a crutch. Nope, um, you only use a prop because you can't do a pose. Nope, um, using a prop is a sign that you are weak or stiff or lack skill. No faults. And um, if you use props, you aren't doing real Ashtanga. Faults. Okay, and there's, there's more, um, but you get the idea of this um, kind of, it's either underlying or explicit attitude that, um, that I just in, encourage you to drop or uh, not regard. Okay, now here's, um, a, here's some little, some positive facts about using props uh, that I will put out there for you and then talk to you in more detail. So, um, K1, props help you build strength and flexibility by um, enabling you to more specifically target desirable actions, movements, or positions. Okay, so, yeah, they help you to build strength or to get more flexible. So they're not, it's not as though it's a crutch or um, a sign of weakness. No, it's a sign of uh, being smart about how you direct your efforts. Okay, um, number two, props help you improve the alignment of your body in a position. Okay, and so this is something that's, that, that pertains to all three subjects of um, using a prop or modifying a pose or customizing um, a series, which is that um, we get a kind of a fictionalized ideal about each of the postures in a series. Okay, and like it, even the, those little cheat sheets that you get or the posters of the, the various uh, teachers put up of them doing the, the poses, Every single one of those uh, posters and cheat sheets, they show a person in the very final stage of a pose. And it's rarely uh, acknowledged just how challenging it is to do even the most basic poses well, okay? And, and so um, I, I liken the primary series to like a kind of a Beethoven symphony. And so, and as a musician, you, it takes a huge amount of training, right, to build up to play a Beethoven symphony. And this is the same when, as a student of yoga, it's a years to uh, be able to do the final position of all these poses in the primary series. Um, 
and yet we, we t when we take to Ashtanga, we, we almost immediately hold ourselves to that standard, saying that we should be able to do triangle, marichyasana D, kurmasana, upavista konasana, all these poses. And we also make the assumption that, um, that like, that a beginner musician would never make, which is that the best way to learn the Beethoven symphony is to just play it over and over the best that you can, even if you make like thousands of mistakes, and that eventually you'll learn to do it. But that isn't the case, right? That you, you have to back things out, and scale things back, and um, modify, customize, come up with um, steps in a progression that lead to the final position. And this is the subject of the, the course that I, that I have coming up. And, but it's also just a central theme of yoga practice. And it, it's not, see, in this, this process of finding steps in a progression, it doesn't like begin when you start third series and the pose is obviously hard. No, it starts right there in Surya Namaskara A. That downward dog is a hard pose to do and requires uh, a lot of careful attention to detail and um, skillful practice, which for me involves using props, like um, putting your hands up on, uh, elevating your hands in downward dog is an excellent um, practice. Or going down on your knees uh, instead of having your legs straight. And so, and you do these, um, Everyone does these things, not just the stiffer student or the weaker student or the older student or the injured student. No, it's just um, it's like part of how you research a pose, how you come to know like what is the what are the possible objectives of making this shape? Like what are the goals and what constitutes um, perfect or at least very uh, a very good pose and, and so these and these are choices that you want to make as a practitioner okay and so um, and for me that's uh, it's an interesting thing because it's it's challenging as a beginner to kind of uh, take stock of a pose or envision what it what would represent ideal and so at first, you might just get in there and and uh, and give it a try, and even follow the the cheat sheets or the the different photos that you see, and follow the instructions of a teacher. But um, different teachers will give you different uh, priorities or different goals or objectives for doing a pose, and so my recommendation and how I approach the practice and why I come up with this uh, placing value on using props or modifying and customizing is because um, I actually spend a, a good deal of time envisioning the pose, envisioning like what is the ideal downward dog or what constitutes like um, right effort in that pose. And so, and then I communicate that to my students. And 
See, it's, it's interesting because, see, part of the mentality of Ashtanga that is challenging is there is a kind of uh, an assumption that um, just repeating will is the best means of doing things, regardless of the quality of your repetition, but just the fact that you repeat, and that's how the, pra the saying, do your practice and all is coming, is often interpreted as though that, yeah, you just repeat and then um, slowly the, the different uh, forms, your ability to do them, uh, you, you take shape. Like, and in a certain gross way, that might be true. But uh, in a, as things play out, as the months unfold, the days and months and years of practice, that way of doing it, it that's what I'm saying. It's like um, practicing the Beethoven Symphony over and over uh, without regard to uh, what the passage is asking of you and what your individual ability to execute that passage. And so for me, what I end up doing is kind of prioritizing. Like, what is important about this pose? And there's this aspect of it that I call making concessions. So this is a big part of yoga, is the, the art of how to negotiate, how to make concessions. And a concession is to give up or allow something um, in the face of difficulty. So, you, so when something's difficult, you, you give up something, or you allow something else to happen. And so this is a perfect uh, little microcosm of what happens in a yoga posture. Okay, so, and as a student, you'll, you, you're making concessions just by doing a pose. There's no, um, there's no not making concessions, right? That we don't have the perfect bodies and we don't have perfect flexibility or perfect strength. And so we're not able to do all these poses perfectly we go into them and we make concessions, okay? And so, and the problem with simply repeating and doing your best um, and hoping that that process of simply repeating and doing your best helps you evolve and have a mature practice and be able to do the postures skillfully, um, that to me is just not the efficient, the most efficient or best way to go about it. In fact, that can lead you into, um, into harm, into um, faulty movement patterns, faulty postural habits that, um, that, the, that the negative effect accumulates over time with repetition. Okay, and this is why I spend a lot of time working with teaching the student to make conscious concessions. Okay, so to give up something on purpose or to allow something to happen on purpose in the face of difficulty and, and then also to, um, to take what's valuable about doing the pose and um, refuse to concede it, to, to not give, give it up or to not allow it to drift away from 
where you want it to go. So there's this, this is where props and modifying comes in. It's like, so if you can't do the, so for instance, if you do take Chaturanga, Chaturanga Dandasana, so very repeated uh, strength move in the Ashtanga system. Okay? And so the, the concessions, or you could say the ideal pose that you would want to do is to create uh, the, like it's right in the name, uh, four-limb staff. So Chandra is four, and Anga is limb, and Danda is staff. So four limbs, staff pose. And so the, so the priority is in the Danda. Okay, and the Danda, a Danda is a stick or a staff and, or a lever. So it's a long and strong, uh, like rod-like object, uh, like a tire iron, right? And that's how you're trying to organize your legs, pelvis, torso, and head when you bend your elbows and come down into that position. A very, very challenging thing to do even though it's so basic and um, so prominently a prominent part of the practice and so often repeated. Okay? And so what happens is when you go to bend the elbows, the pelvis tips forward. But that pelvis, your pelvis, is part of your danda, or the pelvis stays up as the head and chest go down, or the head goes down first. So the, the, there's all these various little shiftings out of position that happen. And so in the standard Ashtanga model, if you just bend your elbows and go down there and try your very best a whole bunch of times, then eventually you'll get strong enough to hold that danda steady. Except for that that does not bear out. Okay, and this is why um, conscious modifying is necessary. You see, because you can say that when your head goes forward, you're modifying the pose. It's just you're doing it in a, uh, you're modifying it in an, a kind of default way, an unconscious way, and a negative way, okay? And so two ways to encounter the chaturanga more skillfully, or actually three ways. One is to start with plank, okay? So to make a beautiful danda with your arms straight, and then um, stabilize your body masses and go for the bending of the elbows. Um, so that's one way, but, and two more are to not go all the way down. So you could say that the ideal of Chaturanga is when your uh, upper arm bone gets parallel to the ground. Okay, that's when you're like at the perfect, uh, you've lowered to the perfect height of Chaturanga. So it's very close to the ground, but, the, but not so close that like the shoulders roll forward and, and, and spoil the line. But going that low is part of what makes the pose challenging. So you could just bend your elbows, say, two inches and, and, and really keep the integrity of the, the danda. You see, and so the, the concession there is that you, you don't bend your elbows all the way. Like that's giving up. You're giving up bending el your, your, your elbows all the way. But you're not conceding the danda. You're not giving up the integrity of the relationship between your head, your pelvis, your head, torso, pelvis, legs. You see, and so the beauty of the asana practice is that it, it forces you to make concessions. 
okay? There's no, and, and maybe in some poses, you'll have an easier time and you won't have to make concessions, but then another pose will come along. And so it makes it so that every student, uh, a big part of their practice is learning to make concessions. And, um, and see, this is why, uh, this is why, like what I opened the podcast saying is, is that customizing and modifying and pulling out props is so basic to the study of the art form that you're, you're studying, right? Like that it's so um, essential to doing effect, to establishing yourself in, a, in an effective, safe practice. And you, so you can, you can modify without props. There's different, um, and I will be covering that in this course that um, I'm going to be doing. That there's, but, but once you allow for using uh, blocks or chairs or walls or or whatever uh, blankets, different things, um, then you really open up the possibilities for um, creating appropriate steps and and seeing things in. Uh, progression so that you can create one step at a time that, and as you gain a little more strength or a little more flexibility then you uh, adjust the your equipment your prop or your modification to suit your new circumstances so and this is true of every transition and every pose that you're you're kind of sizing up what are the objectives what's the goal what constitutes uh, good, good work, um, and then learning to set priorities. What do you absolutely have to keep about this, and what, what can you concede? Yeah, and so, and and, and back to our chaturanga example. So the the, the another um, concession that you can make is to put your hands, elevate your hands on on blocks, on one set of blocks or two. So basically, the higher you go, the easier it is to bend your elbows. The less strength is required to bend your elbows so that you can keep the integrity of your body masses. And this is one of the, um, the reasons that putting your hands on blocks is such a great way to develop strength uh, and enjoyment of Chaturanga Dandasana. And yes, Putting your hands on blocks is a concession. You're, you're allowing your hands to be on blocks, which is you know, less than desirable. Or you could say you're giving up putting your hands on the ground. And yet, it's a, those concessions are worth it because they make it so you don't have to concede your danda. Whereas if you insist on uh, going not using uh, props and going all the way down in Chaturanga, well, then you're going to concede your danda. <laughs> you see? And, and, um, and to me, this, all of this, what I'm talking about, is elementary. It's like just um, standard practice procedure. And, and this is why I get so worked up about the, the um, misguided norms of Ashtanga where you can't, um, readily engage in exactly the kind of um, dialogue and negotiation that I'm uh, encouraging you. And, um, and to my mind, 
is, is the, what makes for an intelligent and fun um, and appropriate practice. Like that's the thing, that's where all the fun is. Like in getting to um, find the step, that where, where, what step am I on? And how can I modify this so that the effort that I'm directing towards doing this transition or doing this posture is, feeds me, nourishes me, um, actually uh, suits my particular set of circumstances, okay? And so if you really stop to think about it too, you can know that the whole idea of if you're using a template, a set sequence, the primary series and second series, then the one-size-fits-all is a recipe for disaster. Okay, like in, in one sense, it's, uh, it's so helpful, right? You don't have to think about what to do. And there's a, it's a good plan, the, the primary series. It's, it's a good um, set of postures put in a good order. Okay, but on the other hand, to make the whole point about every student following that exact sequence in that way every day for life, now this is a real, uh, it's a, it's like untenable, it's a very harmful to people, um, but it's also just um, not a good spirit, not uh, so unnecessary and just a misinterpretation of what you stand to gain by following a, a sequence of poses in a certain order. And, um, and it's right built into the lineage. Like if you go back into the, the work of um, Krishnamacharya, who's the grandfather of, the, of it all, of the modern yoga, of both Iyengar and Ashtanga yoga, he, he just says it straight out that uh, the teacher has to size, consider all the different variables of each student and um, give, assign the appropriate asanas, right? So that, and, and he uh, includes uh, the age, the work, the uh, kind of kinesthetic capacity, genetic endowment, all these different factors uh, are mixed together to um, to give you a practice that works for you, okay? And so uh, this is what I focus on in, in my teaching. Uh, and then, so here's, a, I'm going to continue on with my list a little bit, um, the, the positive facts about props. So props, they help you stay in poses longer with more ease. Okay, so this is a very, very important thing, okay? And um, the, the idea of taking five breaths in a pose and moving on to the next is, it's excellent for a kind of uh, a busy householder that, you know, is gonna do a practice in the morning and then dash off to work for the day and deal with family responsibilities, right? So that, so that if you, you get this sequence and you stay in the pose for a few breaths and move on and keep moving, 
there's a good rhythm to it and, and you get a nice um, practice. Okay, but, but um, part of that prescription was that at least one day a week, a student was encouraged to, to spend, like on Saturdays, say, or Sundays, on the weekend, to spend three hours or, um, doing the practice, slowing things down, staying in the poses. And, and certainly, um, as you move from the beginner, novice stage into the intermediate or the uh, veteran and mastery, advanced student, staying in the pose is just becomes um, de rigueur, becomes just a standard thing that you do, okay? And, and you realize that the five breath recipe is never, never was intended to be five breaths per pose per, for life, <laughs> right? That that's, it's just a, a thing that gets you into the great art. Okay. And so, so it's wonderful to um, know how to modify a pose or use a prop to make it easy enough to stay longer and, um, and really explore what that, what that pose is about. And, and that goes for uh, you know, really basic poses like uh, seated meditation pose, Baddha Konasana, or inversions like um, shoulder stand. But it even goes for um, really difficult poses, like third series arm balances or a challenging backbend. There's ways to modify those and make them easier so that you can um, explore and stay in them longer with more ease. Okay, and then um, no, another thing about props is they help make your pose safer. So you can use props to protect your body. Okay, and. Um, many different examples, but um, like sitting on a blanket in uh, when you do Marichyasana, say, it helps you to keep your weight forward into your legs so that, and um, so you're not back um, sitting on your pelvis in a backward tilt, which is it's not really that healthy for your um, your pelvis or your spine. And um, there's just many, many examples where, just modifying a pose, or, or um, even the chaturanga example that I gave earlier, the when you do a position that helps you maintain the integrity of your body masses and the horizontal axis, that's protecting you, right? Because putting your head forward, um, uh, and or rolling your shoulders forward, or lifting up your pelvis, and um, these, these discrepancies, they're not just like uh, some kind of personal preference. I mean, there's a beauty aspect, but there's a alignment, like your skeleton is meant to function in a certain way. And the more you're um, using your skeleton as it's meant to be used, the safer you're, do, you're working. And this is true in a kind of immediate sense, in a temporary sense, but it's even more true with the repetition and the piling up of days and months of practice. Okay, so you want to make sure that you're using your skeleton well so that 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road, you still have a fit body uh, for doing basic things like walking, standing, sitting, but also for doing your beloved asanas. 
Okay, um, so, and here's another thing about props that is really good and modifying as well, which is props help you to break difficult poses up into logical, manageable steps that progress from easier to more difficult. That's just that simple, okay? And this is part of uh, customizing your practice as well, is how do you do this? How do you look at a pose and know that, you're, uh, that it challenges you and, and how it challenges you? And then how can you uh, kind of back it out and find, um, break it up into a logical sequence of um, appropriate steps? And um, this is the, the beauty and the fun and the interest of props is that, uh, of props, but also just of modifying, of thinking about um, your approach to a pose differently and, um, and having more to bring to your, your work than simply giving your best try every day, um, kind of regardless of the specific details of the trying. Just like get in there, um, think of, look at the picture and try to make that shape to the best of your ability and whatever limits or whatever kind of shape your body makes by default, that's what you have to bring. And see, in this, I'm trying to uh, steer you away from and trying to give you a, a much more uh, ability to size up the variables to factor in your, your own individual body and circumstances and then come up with a good plan. Okay, and then um, here's some other ones, uh, other positive facts about props or modifying. So that um, props, they help you pinpoint what has value in doing a pose. And then beyond pinpointing what value, they help you to bring excellence to your efforts um, to bring excellence to your efforts to draw forth what has value. You see, and this is what I love. This is one of my favorite things about um, using steps, uh, modifying a pose by breaking it into steps uh, and using props is that, you see, like because if you put your hands on blocks and lower yourself into chaturanga, your chances of creating a perfect danda, like beautiful uh, form, are good, really high, okay? And so th that, it's amazing to me. And the only price you had to pay to do that is put your hands on blocks. But otherwise, for, in every other respect, you've got a perfect chaturanga. See, in props, they give you that, that ability to like really make what's important about the pose um, come to perfection or near perfection. And, and this is a very valuable experience, something uh, so cool. Um, and that brings me to the next point about it, which is that props are fun and they add interest and variety um, to the repetitive process of doing poses uh, day after day. It, like, it, yeah. It's quite, I find it quite humorous to find myself doing a really hard pose, you know, but I'm using props and, but I'm doing it. 
<laughs> and yeah, and you know, like in a perfect world, I wouldn't need to use those props to do that perfect pose. But what can I say? I'm not in a perfect world. And so why shall I deny myself that experience of uh, what amounts to supreme enjoyment? Because, you know, when it comes down to it, doing chaturanga, a perfect chaturanga on blocks or doing a perfect chaturanga on the ground, there isn't that much difference. Okay, and the same, like if you do a drop back and you, use, you touch the wall, like way, pretty high up the wall, but you do it perfectly, like you make the whole setup, the gesture into the position and come to a nice destination and then come back up with a move, you've done it. I mean, th th you get almost all of the benefits and the satisfaction of doing a drop back, even though you haven't gone all the way to the ground. You see, and, and the same cannot be said for if you um, kind of break all kinds of rules, but get your body, get your hands all the way to the ground when you do a drop back, like um, turning your feet out and um, uh, tucking your pelvis under and flattening your spine. See, all of these things, they might get you to be able to drop back to the floor, but those concessions you're making to do it are not worth it. And it's funny because it takes, it can take you a while to understand, um, you see, there's a cathartic uh, satisfaction, you could say. There's some kind of feeling of a real accomplishment if you drop back to the ground, no matter what the quality of it is, right? And people, to me, they, that might be okay like once, or twice like you know you just okay I did it but the moment that you you've succeeded in that then you've got to go back and go okay now how can I what's what's the priorities here what's important about doing this and how can I make sure that I'm prioritizing what's important and what's the steps what step is right for me in this and what surprises me is people being willing to um, concede very valuable parts of doing a pose habitually, day after day. You see, and that just does not, um, I, I'm, I'm not an advocate of that. So it does take a switch in perspective, though. You could say that there's a certain uh, kind of heroism to dropping back to the ground no matter what. It's like climbing a mountain and just gritting it out. And you look like kind of like the tortoise versus the hare when you, there you are with your little move of dropping back to the, to the wall, even though it's got all the, um, you know, it's, it's aligned and it's got integrity throughout the parts. And so I do understand the, 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 the cathartic um, yearning for catharsis, but it's something that you have to balance with sober kind of uh, rational intelligence as you, you work in your poses. Okay, and then uh, another one is props help you to learn more about what a pose um, could be or is meant to be um, and on how it's meant to be done or what you could express through doing that shape. So that's 
it's one of the cool things is that uh, there's so many different creative ways to approach a pose. And when you, as soon as you allow like a wall or a chair or, you know, some outer object to enter into your dance and, um, and allow yourself to take advantage of something, um, dimensions open up, play opens up, and uh, yeah, just different experience of the pose and different kind of new uh, insights into, insight into uh, the possibilities that that pose or shape or transition or movement uh, offers. <clears throat> okay, so uh, that's a little little discussion on a big subject and so hope you enjoyed it and uh, I would love to have you join me in this upcoming course. It starts January 20th and, and uh, you can get the particulars of, of it all on my website. I will tell you, you can come to the live class. Um, it's on the weekend. Or you can do the recorded class uh, at your leisure. <clears throat> and so thank you for joining me for this installment of the Austin awesome Kitchen podcast. And namaste.